Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. I caught up with growth stock investor Jonah Lipton, up 90% year to date, and ready to discuss the top two holdings in his current portfolio. Ed originally spoke to Jonah back in March, so instead of recovering old ground, Jonah and I got straight into these two exciting companies, Futu Holdings and Upstart. Jonah's mission is to identify the stocks that have the potential to 5x over the next five years. And with 534,000 Twitter followers, 10,000 YouTube subscribers, and a popular private room on StockTwits, Jonah's widely renowned for his stock market tips. Enjoy the interview. Welcome, Jonah. It's great to have you on the show. How's your week been so far? The market's kept you busy. Yeah, um, it's been pretty good. Uh, overall, I'm still having a really good year. Uh, I think 90% year to date. Um, but I, I think it's going to be a chop. I think the next six months are going to be pretty choppy in the markets, you know, as we get economic data, inflation data, you know, the transitory conversation doesn't stop with inflation anytime soon. And, you know, when the Fed starts their taper talk. So I, I expect a, a six month roller coaster from here on out. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think we're in for some sort of choppier waters in the medium term, um, as you say. Um, but 90% year to date is pretty impressive. So, um, yeah, not bad going already. Yeah, I mean, which, which is fine. I mean, I don't mind choppiness. I mean, I am a long-term growth investor, yeah. but I also trade around my positions. So you know, I usually say like two-thirds of a position is long-term, and then the other one-third of a position is for trading and trying to add some alpha. Um, so I'm fine with choppiness. I, I have different ways to take advantage of it. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. That makes a lot of sense. Let's uh, get stuck straight into kind of how you identify stocks and what you're looking for uh, when you're adding businesses to your current portfolio uh, before that we then talk about some specific positions that you're holding at the moment. I just wonder whether you sort of prioritize consistent fundamentals or traits, for example, or, you know, is there a specific market cap you look at, level of revenue generation, perhaps? So I'm definitely more of a fundamental guy. You know, like I said, I'm, a, I'm really focused on growth stocks. The kind of the, the core focus of my strategy is looking for companies that I believe can 5x over the next five years. So I know that sounds easy. You know, that sounds great. You know, I think only a few professional investors in history have ever averaged 38% a year, which is what you would get with 5x in five years. So yeah. I don't expect to do that in my portfolio or the ETF that I'm going to be running later this year. But it's at least where I like to start. I like to know that the companies I'm investing in for the long term have that sort of upside potential over the next five years. So that's kind of where I start. I'm not a macro guy. I'm more of a bottom-up fundamental guy. So I do look at the fundamentals. I do care about growth rates. I do care about uh, margins and profitability and earnings and cash flow. I mean, as a as a growth investor on the earlier side, you know, I'm not overly focused with, with profits. If I do see significant upside over the next three, four, or five years, I'm willing to overlook some losses in the short term, as long as I don't think the company is just is, 
there's burning cash and therefore going to have to do a lot of secondary offerings and dilute shareholders. Uh, that's not that's not a good position to be in. Um, but in terms of traits, you know, I, I like founder-led companies. Um, obviously, I like, like I said earlier, some competitive advantages that this company has, whether it's technology, first mover advantage, IP, the team, you know, a lot of different ways that that companies can um, you know, separate themselves from the competition. So as we start to go through some of the companies that I own right now, you'll probably get a good feeling of, you know, I mean, obviously I'll explain why I like them and we'll be able to talk about some of the competitive advantages and, you know, why I think these companies are going to be the winners in the industries they operate within. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and beyond fundamentals then, in terms of technical analysis, is it just about kind of identifying a good entry point and a good exit point after maybe that five-year sort of time horizon. You also mentioned doing a bit of trading around the positions as well. I wonder just how much sort of technical analysis is, is kind of incorporated within your strategy. Yeah, it's probably about 20 or 25% of my strategy is based on technical mm. analysis. It's not, I'm still learning. Uh, I mean, I feel like I've gotten a lot better over the last couple of years on the technical side, but um, you know, my background is really on the fundamental side. So I just use technical, mm. like you said, to help you figure out either when to get in a position or get out or at least start trimming or adding, um, you know, whether it's using different trend lines or moving averages or um, AWAPs and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's, there are some really good technical traders out there, but that's really their, their primary focus. Uh, for me, it's not. I mean, I think technical analysis is, is more for the, the day trader or the swing trader. Um, you know, you're looking for those breakouts or those uh, those high tight bull flags, and you know you're going to ride that for the next week on the breakout, and then you're going to you know get out of the position and look for the next one. That's that's really for a long term growth investor. For me, uh, that's just that strategy just doesn't really work. Yeah, um, I need to be able to build out twenty to twenty five positions in my portfolio and own them for the next three, four, five years as my investment thesis plays out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So let's start then by discussing two companies in your current portfolio, just to give people, I guess, a sense of the types of businesses you you currently have decent uh, positions in. Uh, let's start with Futu. It's particularly sort of fascinating company. When I had a brief look into them before the call, um, perhaps you could just, uh, before we get into the fundamentals uh, and kind of the growth drivers around this stock, you could just explain what the company does and what about the business model stands out to you. Yep. So, you know, I, I like to invest in different themes that I believe are uh, here for the long term. You know, the, the TAMs are expanding. And one of those obviously is fintech. You know, there are others like clean energy and medical devices and uh, genomics and things like that. But fintech is, is one of the largest. And it just so happens that my two biggest positions are both fintech companies. So the first one is Futu. The best way, the easiest way to describe what they do is probably just to say they're the Robin Hood of China, mm. uh, which is timely today because we got the Robin Hood S1 yesterday. So Robin Hood has filed to go public. They dropped their S1 yesterday. I haven't read the whole thing, but I did skim through it. Most of, you know, I mean, I already understand their business model. So I'm, I'm not surprised by anything they really said in terms of risks or. Uh, you know, strategy, but it was the the numbers that I was most interested in, especially the the revenue numbers, the margins, 
how much is coming from trading equities to options to payment for order flow and then you know how profitable are they i mean what are the actual net income margins on the business because then i can compare that to futu and i expected futu to look really good going into that s1 uh, and I think Futu looks even better now with mm. with the S one. So both companies are growing very very rapidly. Uh, Futu grew about two hundred and twelve percent last year. Uh, Robinhood grew a little bit faster, but in Q one of this year, Robinhood grew three hundred and forty nine percent year over year, which was faster than Robinhood. Um, mm. So Futu, when they got started, so the company was started. I want to say eight or nine years ago, um, the founder of the company was actually the 18th employee at Tencent. So a lot of people know Tencent, you know, just a, a, a kind of an internet conglomerate company in China. They own stakes in several hundred companies, uh, including some large ones like C Limited. And I think they even have a big stake in, might be Tesla. Uh, it's hard to keep track of everything they own. But Anyways, I think their market cap is probably around seven hundred billion now, and, and this guy Leaf was uh, the 18th employee there, and then he actually got Tencent to lead the A round when he started raising capital for Futu, and Tencent is actually uh, the largest outside shareholder right now with about twenty percent of the company. And for anyone that understands Tencent, they typically take these stakes and they really have no intentions of ever selling them. They're kind of the the Berkshire Hathaway. Of China in that sense, you know these are long-term positions, so you don't have to worry about Tencent ever unloading the stock in Futu. So it's great to have them as an as an anchor shareholder. Uh, but Futu, so they're primarily focused on China, both mainland China and then Hong Kong. That's probably eighty-five percent of their their operations and revenues right now. And then international would be the other fifteen percent. And their two biggest international markets right now are Singapore and the U.S. And they're putting a pretty big emphasis on growing internationally. And that's also where they want to start offering crypto services as well, because they can't really do crypto in China. But you know, there are, as we know, over a billion people in China, uh, and that you know, this emerging class of millennials or affluent people, whatever you want to call them, are interested in building their wealth through investing and being able to access markets outside of China, primarily the US, and that's where Futu can help them. But where Futu really started off as just a, you know, more of a Robin Hood, you know, trading equities and options and margin interest and pretty basic stuff, they've really, they've evolved into more of a full financial services platform company because they're now they're doing wealth management. So they're kind of incorporating some of the stuff that you would get from, let's say, a Charles Schwab or even a Merrill Lynch. So they're partnering with these large wealth management companies to offer those types of services for the people that don't want to build their own portfolios and manage their own portfolios and you know pick stocks and pick ETFs or even mutual funds. Uh, you know, now they have that fee-based alternative. Uh, which is kind of what wealth management uh, has turned into over the last 10 or 15 years in the US. It's really all fee-based. So, and then when I interviewed the CFO uh, a couple of weeks ago, Arthur Chen, he talked about them you know, expanding even beyond wealth management into insurance and lending and, and other services uh, you know, to really complete the picture for their, their customers. But you know, the growth uh, of Food2 is just 
absolutely bonkers. So like I said, revenue growth in Q1 was up 349%. Uh, total number of customers was up 230%. Gross profit was up 372%. And then net income was up like 550%. I mean, just crazy numbers. But the big difference between them and every other growth company on the planet, including Robinhood and Coindesk, is that Futu was actually very, very profitable. Actually, Coindesk is profitable. Um, Robinhood is basically break even. They they lost a billion and a half dollars in Q1, but it's because they had to raise a bunch of money and then they had to reprice reprice some debt and warrants, and mm. they ended up taking like a one and a half billion dollar loss for it. But you know that's not something that's probably going to occur again. So I'm not going to hold that hold that against them. You know, in order to compare kind of apples to apples, so. Futu is growing like, a, I mean, they're not going to be able to maintain 349% growth. Obviously, that's that's sort of an anomaly in Q1. I expect them to do, for full year 2021, I expect them to do somewhere between 180 and 200% year over year. Net in, but this is where the story gets good. So their gross margins are about 80%, uh, might even tick up a little bit from there as we get through the year. Uh, and they introduce some of these new services. But their net income margins are 50%. Mm-hmm. So that's the big difference because Robinhood's, if you back out that one and a half billion dollar loss, uh, Robinhood's net income margins are somewhere around 10 or 11%. Mm-hmm. So Futu is growing faster, but they're doing it at a much more, you know, profitable, <laughs> in a much more profitable way. Mm-hmm. So I think Futu this year will probably do somewhere between uh, 1.1 and 1.2 billion dollars, with about a 50% net income margin. So you know, let's say they do 600 million in net income this year. Market cap is around 24 billion after the stock pulled back yesterday. Mm-hmm. So you have a company in Futsu that's growing at let's call it 180 percent and trading at 40 times earnings. I mean, you have companies in the U.S. like Snowflake that are growing probably half as fast, you know, two thirds as fast mm-hmm. as uh, Futsu, but they're trading at 40 times sales. Yeah. So I mean. 40 times earnings for that kind of growth is just insane. I mean, if this if Futu was a US-based company putting up these numbers, they'd probably have a $60 billion market cap. Mm. Uh, but right now they have a $24 billion market cap. And this is my second largest position, even though I know there's the, the China risk there. Um, there's just a lot of things to like about the story, including you know who the CEO is or founder and CEO, who he is, where he came from. Who the early investors were, because it wasn't just Tencent. Uh, they also raised money from Sequoia, from Matrix, and a few other very, very well-known uh, VC firms. So, uh, and then, and just who the you know who their their market is. Um, clearly, these Chinese customers, these Chinese residents, are looking for services like this. Uh, and there's only a few out there, including Futu, that can really give them what they want. So, I mean, the growth is going to have to slow down a little bit. But I still expect them to grow at, you know, let's call it 70, 80, 90 CAGR over the next three, four, five years. And I think this could be a $100 billion company in a few years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I say, it's a fascinating business. And I think, well, I'd like to pick up on your point about the diversification of the business model. I mean, I, I had a look at a, a diagram I think you had on your blog and it basically showed that there were eight businesses existing under the kind of Futu Holdings umbrella. And then obviously there were subdivisions within those businesses as well. So 
is the diversification of the business model a key kind of element of your investment case for this business versus a company like Robinhood, for example? Well, I mean, I, I think it probably looks like more businesses because they break out everything, uh, China and then uh, non-China. You know, Futu actually has a, uh, an office in the United States. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of the headquarters for their international app. So they have, so Futu Bull is their Chinese version of their app and their software and their trading platform. And then Moomoo, I know it's kind of a, corny name, uh, Moomoo <laughs> is the international version of Futubol. So they really keep everything completely separate. Right. Just to, I mean, there's, there's different regulators in every country. Mm. Um, I mean, there's just so much regulation in the financial services industry. Uh, and I, so it's probably smart to have these different names and different versions and different entities uh, for their different apps in different countries. Uh, so when they start offering crypto services, it's only going to be for the Moomoo app, not the Futu Bowl, because obviously the, the CCP in China doesn't want anything to do with crypto for their their residents. So Futu obviously doesn't want to you know, get on their bad side. So I don't think we're going to see Futu Bowl offering crypto anytime soon. So that would just be for the Singapore and the US customers. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying. Um, the, the things that attract me to Futu, it's, it's the current growth, it's the future potential growth, it's those, you know, those gross margins, those net income margins. I mean, clearly, this is a very, you know, asset light, highly operational leveraged business where uh, when I talked to Arthur mm. Chen, you know, he thought that those 50% net income margins could even go up higher over the next few years. So I, mean, there's, I don't know if there's another company on the planet that's growing at 180 or 200% with 50% net income margins. Now, I know Coindesk put up some really big numbers in their, their S1 because uh, they obviously went public a few months ago, but they are really obviously tied to crypto. Um, and if crypto trading mm. slows down, then clearly Coindesk's numbers are not sustainable. And I think we're already starting to see that, um, you know, as some of the, the air comes out of the crypto space. So, you know, thankfully, Futu is not leveraged to crypto. They haven't even earned a penny off of crypto yet. That would just be some icing on the cake at some point down the road. Yeah, great. Okay, well, let's, let's just talk about where the stock is at the moment and kind of where you see it headed over the next, well, I guess the short to medium term and then the long term as well. So I think it's around $161 at the moment. It's NASDAQ listed. So where do you see it landing by the end of 2022 first? What's, what's your kind of target? I'm glad you asked that because you know now that we're halfway through the year, I really hate giving uh, year-end targets because it's just yeah. six months away and there's just so many things that can happen over the next six months. Um, I, I really prefer those you know, those 18 month price targets, or at least from where we are right now, um, it gives you, you know, six quarters of financial data to look at and really come up with some more accurate numbers. So, uh, so I think, um, right. So Futu recently, a couple of days ago, Futu traded up to about 180, 181. And then yesterday, based off of some comments out of China, which kind of spooked a lot of the Chinese stock, the stock pulled back. I think almost 10%, you know, down to, like you said, kind of the low 160s. Um, I think this could be a $300 stock by the end of next year. Oh. So I have been doing uh, about 1.2 billion this year. 
And then I'm just looking at my numbers right now. And then for next year, I have them doing uh, somewhere around 2.1, 2.2 billion. Wow. Um, and honestly, that's I think that's probably really conservative. You know, a lot of that's going to depend on how fast they continue their growth in Singapore. You know, are they able to penetrate the U.S. markets? They're obviously competing against Robinhood and Webull and Interactive Brokers and a lot of other you know well-established companies in the U.S. But I've talked to a handful of people that use Futu as their primary trading app, and they really love it. So I, even though I own the stock, I've actually never traded on mm. Futu before. Um, but based, based on the opinions of several of my friends, I might actually give it a shot and, and see how it compares to what I use right now, which is Interactive mm. Brokers. So you know, if Futu can do you know 2.1, 2.2 billion next year and maintain those 50% net income margins, then I think this is a uh, an easy three hundred dollars stock, maybe even three twenty five or three fifty by the end of next year. Yeah, great. Okay, well, final question on Futu then. If we if we consider that sort of principle of five xing over five years, where where do you see Futu in five years? Yeah, so this is the tricky one because that is, like I said, <laughs> like the first thing I said was that's kind of the you know the the core focus or my strategy is five x in five years. Now I've been in Futu since December when it was a forty dollars stock. So right. yeah. a lot of people are loading up right now at 160. And even though I think there's there's good reason to, and I just added to the stock yesterday myself. So, you know, I trimmed a little bit at 180. I bought some back yesterday in the low 160s. You know, that's how I, I trade around these core positions. Mm-hmm. Um, so without a doubt, Futu is going to 5X within five years from where I bought it in December at 40, right? I mean, we, we'll probably get there by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from here, you know, you know, twenty-four billion dollar market cap. You know, you back out the cash. I think they have about a billion, a billion or a billion and a half in cash right now because they just did a, a raise back in April. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they still have the chance to five x in five years because, I mean, theoretically, if the PE multiple is already um, reasonable, and in this case, probably way too low. I mean, to be honest, they should probably be trading. At like a hundred times earnings, you know, with that growth, uh, both on revenue and, and earnings and the margins. Um, I mean, you see a lot of companies um, growing at 60, 70%, like I said, trading at 20, 30, 40 times sales and still two years away from even break even, you know, never mind actual being profitable and will never ever get to 30, 40% net income margins, never mind 50%. So, I mean, Futu is basically in a league of its own. But I mean, the fact that it's still only trading 40 times earnings, and I don't see any way they don't maintain their growth rate at above 50% over the next five years. So, I mean, even if they maintain their growth at 50% for the next five years and they don't get any multiple contraction, I mean, it's an easy five bagger. So uh, you can just do the math. So I guess the only question is if growth slows down to 50% a year, uh, you know, do they actually get multiple contraction? Um, I guess, you know, I mean, if they're only growing 50, 60% a year, could that, you know, PE multiple contract from 40 down to 20 or 25? Mm. I mean, I guess it could, it would be absolutely absurd, but, you know, sometimes with these Chinese stocks, it's a little bit hard to predict, you know, the multiples they're going to trade at because they do seem to trade at a pretty big discount compared to U.S. companies. Yeah, no, they definitely do. What I really want to see with the Robinhood IPO is obviously we got the S1, we know the numbers now. I want to see what the valuation is going to be. I want to see what they actually price 
this IPO at and then how it trades within a few days because their profit margins are only 11, 11%. So it's going to be a little bit hard to compare mm. PE multiples from one to the other. I mean, I guess you could, you know, we could compare them on like price to sales. Um, but either way, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that Robin Hood's going to end up trading at valuation somewhere north of 50 billion, mm. um, which I believe is just, it is just going to make Futu look that much cheaper. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that valuation is going to be fascinating when it comes out, um, even just to use as a benchmark against the Futu holding, which I think a lot of our listeners will be looking out for after, after they hear this interview. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So that's that's one of your core positions. I believe it's the second biggest holding within your portfolio. Let's move on to your biggest holding, which I think currently is a company called Upstart. I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, will have heard of it. Uh, but if they haven't, um, and even if they have, there's a, a, some really interesting sort of fundamentals and specifics I think we can go into now. The business model is based on an AI-powered lending and underwriting platform, as far as I understand it. So to what extent do you think this is sort of the future of, of kind of the lending and the credit industry at large? So I, I think it is the future. I, mean, I think you, uh, you really hit the, the nail on the head right there. So, so I've been in, just like Futu, you know, I've been in this stock for the last six or seven months since it was in the high 30s. Mm-hmm. Now Upstart is trading in the 120s and it actually got up as high as 191 uh, a few weeks ago before they got into their lockup expiration. So for anyone that doesn't really know the story, so AI, uh, Upstart, uh, ticker symbol UPST, uh, came public in December. Uh, The founder and CEO, Dave Girard, was actually running Google's enterprise cloud division before he left Google about nine or 10 years ago to start Upstart with two other people, uh, with Anna and Paul. And Paul was actually a in the, the, the Peter Thiel Fellowship Program. So very, very smart kid. Uh, and he really was just a kid at the time. I think he was like 20, 21 or 22 uh, when he actually left the, the Thiel Fellowship Program to start Upstart with, uh, with Dave and Anna. So when they first started, they were doing person-to-person loans, which they call P2P. They tried that for a year. It really wasn't working. They weren't, you know, mm-hmm. they, they weren't picking up that traction they needed. So they went to the VCs, they actually offered to return the capital. The VCs said, no, figure something else out. And that's when they started developing these, these AI models because they understood that the, the entire credit rating system is based off of FICO scores. And FICO scores were, were created like 30 years ago, and they really have not changed much. And for anyone that's ever pulled up your credit report or had a problem with your credit report, I mean, you understand how frustrating it is, um, and it's because it's just a very outdated system, but yet that's what the entire banking and financial system uses to determine someone's credit worthiness and whether or not you should be getting a loan and what interest rate you should be paying on that loan. And what Dave and his team decided upstart was that was ridiculous. There should be a more advanced, more sophisticated model with more variables and more data points that continue to get smarter and smarter over time, which is basically what AI is supposed to do. And that's how the company was sort of reinvented. And over the last eight years, they have you know, continued to perfect this model by adding more variables and more data points. So 
There are now up to 1,600 variables and 16 billion data points. And that's because every time, every time a loan is applied for, approved, wow. denied, a payment is made, a payment is missed, like all of these different events all create data points that allows this AI model to keep getting smarter and smarter and smarter. Um, so it's able to do things that FICO scores can't do. And for people that, you know, for maybe people like myself, you know, me, me and you that make good money, um, you know, we have cash in the bank, maybe we own a house, uh, but we have a, a high credit score. We don't have a problem getting loans, but there are tens and millions of people out there that, you know, make a little bit less money. Yeah. Maybe they had some credit problems a few years ago. Those things are still on their credit report. It's still hurting their credit rating. It's still hurting their ability to get a loan, but yet they've done a lot of great things over the last few years that makes them a less risky borrower. Um, and that's what AI is able to pick up on that FICO scores cannot. And, and that's why I'm just so optimistic uh, and excited about what this company is going to do over the next five and 10 years for our, you know, for our credit system. So right now they have 18 bank partners um, and then they, you know, they source their leads through uh, Credit Karma. They also do a lot of DTC marketing, you know, direct consumer marketing. Um, altogether, they have about a 22% conversion rate, which is incredible. And that's one of the things they talked about on Q1 earnings was that the conversion rate was so much higher than they expected mm. it to be which means that now they can rationalize spending more money on sales and marketing because the conversion rate is so good. Uh, so they have these eight, 18 bank partners and those bank partners um, are also developing their own leads through their own websites and through their own marketing. And then, you know, when a lead basically comes in, they're using Upstart's AI models to either approve or deny that applicant. And they're paying Upstart a fee for that. And then if Upstart, you know, develops that lead themselves and passes it off to their bank partners, they get a referral fee for that, as well as they get another fee for that bank partner using their, their AI models to approve or find the loan. So, you know, Upstart is not a lender. They are not a mm. bank. They are really a fintech or technology company that is licensing these AI models to these uh, to these bank partners. And then last week, we got two really exciting announcements, one of which is Upstart is now a preferred partner of the NAFCU, which is the National Association of Federally Insured Credit Unions, which is like thousands of credit unions that belong to this association. Uh, and credit unions in this country represent over $1.5 trillion in assets, it might even be 2 or $3 trillion now. Uh, so credit unions represent a massive uh, you know, component of our banking system. And now those credit unions are going to have access to Upstart's models through this partnership. And then they also announced another partnership with a company called Nextsoft, NXT Soft, uh, that's going to allow banks to get started, integrated, onboarded faster with Upstart's technology and models faster than previous. So like before it used to take some of these banks six to 12 months to get fully integrated with Upstart's platform. And now that's going to be, you know, decreased to just weeks. So that's going to really speed up how quickly Upstart can scale up with these new bank partners and credit unions. So two big announcements that probably aren't getting recognized well enough or appreciated by investors. 
But all of that sounds great. But like the part that gets me really excited is just it's the numbers. It's the fundamentals. The proof is in the numbers, and Upstart is absolutely crushing it. So the company did 233 million revenues last year. Um, when they reported Q4 numbers uh, earlier this year, they gave revenue guidance for 2021 of 500 million. And then when they reported Q1 numbers, they increased that to 600 million. So pretty massive increase right out of the gate in early 2021. Um, and there's a few reasons why they may have done that because they, they did recently acquire a company called Prodigy, mm. uh, which is a company that builds software for auto dealers. And the idea is that uh, now that Upstart has already announced they're getting into the auto lending space, by purchasing a company like Prodigy and integrating their auto lending models into that technology, it'll allow them to, you know, to accelerate that, you know, that growth potential into, into auto loans. So the CEO kind of calls Prodigy uh, the Shopify of the of the auto space. So you know, they're looking to sell the software and also you know, uh, provide lending capabilities to those auto dealers mm. uh, and then pay them fees, you know, referral fees, basically. So, but back to the numbers. So, so right now, guidance for 2021 is 600 million. I believe that's probably conservative. I'm sure they probably left some in the tank. We could easily get another raise in, you know, when they report Q2 numbers, probably because when they, when they gave us that 600 million mm -hmm. increase, uh, when they reported Q1, they hadn't finalized these deals yet with NAFCU or NextSoft. So they probably couldn't account for any potential revenue bump from either one of the partnerships. So that could easily be in the next revenue guidance increase, which I do think we'll get in the right. next you know, two months when we get those Q2 earnings. And then obviously there's a lot of things that could happen in the last you know six months of the year. But you know, when we get into January or February of next year, and we start looking at full 2021 numbers, I believe we're going to end up seeing somewhere around 675 to 700 million for the year. Although I wouldn't even be surprised if they did more than 700 million. But even if they just came in at 600 million, which was which is the current guidance, that's still 158% year over year growth. So the numbers that I'm proposing, you know, with some, you know, with some bumps on the guidance up to 675 or 700. That would represent 180 to 190 percent um, increase year over year. I think 675 would be 190. Um, which, I mean, that's just that's monster growth for a company that's just getting started. Wow. Um, you know, and like they haven't mm -hmm. even begun. I mean, they haven't even gotten into other aspects of credit yet, which would be mortgages, um, student lending, credit cards, small business lending. I mean, there's so many other aspects to the credit markets they could get into. Now, you know, back to the numbers. So we're gonna we're gonna get at least 160% year over year growth. I think we get something closer to 180, 190, maybe even 200% year over year growth. Gross margins similar to Futu, you know, one of the reasons I like these kinds of companies, very asset light, high gross margins. So gross margins for upstart are about 84%, could get up to 85% this year. Uh, contribution margins are around 48%. Net income margins around eleven or twelve percent. So you know they're growing very fast, but they're doing it profitably. Unlike once again, a lot of these newer software companies that are growing at 70, 80, 90 percent, but losing a ton of money. I mean, not to pick on Snowflake because I do love the company, but 
you know, Snowflake is growing very fast, but they're also losing a ton of money. You know, a couple of days ago, we got the Sentinel IPO a couple of days ago, growing, I think, 110, 115%, losing a ton yeah. of money. I mean, like these companies are literally coming public with negative 50% net income margins. Meanwhile, Utu has a positive 50% net income margin and Upstart is 11% right now. You know, yeah. my guess is over the next few years, uh, they probably have a shot to grow that to you know, mid twenties, uh, high twenties, maybe even the low thirties in, in five or six years, or maybe a little bit longer than that. Cause I, I don't think right now their primary focus is, you know, maximizing profits. I think it's really growth. It's bring you know, bringing this technology to as many bank partners as possible. You know, Josh Brown, who is on nice. CNBC, he's on the halftime show, does a great job. Uh, he actually, he picked Upstart as his favorite company about a week ago and, and he said it pretty you know pretty well he said you know the mm. largest banks like jp morgan and bank of america might end up developing their own ai models in-house because they have the resources to build the teams to go build the technology and then manage it but there are thousands and thousands of banks that aren't named JP Morgan and Bank of America that don't have the resources or the capital or the, the people to build this stuff in-house. And they will be looking for a third party like Upstart to provide that technology for them. So so I'm I'm pretty pumped about this company. I think this is an easy, easy five-bagger over the next five years. I mean, right now the market cap, uh, because the stock did pull back to you know the, the low 120s. Mm-hmm. Um, market. I think the enterprise value is back down to about uh, nine billion right now. If you back out the cash, so you know nine billion enterprise value. Divide that by let's say seven hundred million revenues this year, and you have a stock that's trading at under thirteen times um, enterprise to sales, yet growing at one hundred and seventy, one hundred and eighty, one hundred ninety percent, and profitable. Like once again, I mean, there, there there are not many companies on the planet like Upstart and Futu with that kind of growth that are doing it at, in such a profitable way. So, I mean, that's why like these pullbacks are for me they're just massive buying opportunities because these stocks have such a bright future, and I'm going to hold them for a long time. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's such a crucial point about them already making a profit. There's so many companies, particularly within the fintech space, that yes, they're growing massively, but they're doing it at quite significant losses so i think you're completely right right and like these companies both did stock offerings recently and of course the stocks sell off whenever that happens and i get it because they always price the offerings below the current price Mm. but like these these companies are not doing stock offerings because they need to cover operations because they're burning money and they're losing money that's not the case with them i mean they're raising money to grow faster yeah you know like i mean like once you find, you know, I mean, I know they're not startups anymore, but when you're a startup, you talk about finding the you know, product market fit, and then you want to go raise more capital so you can, you know, basically dump more fuel on the fire and, you know, blow up your, your revenues. I mean, that's what these companies are doing. Like they have product market fit and now they're rate, you know, they raised capital so they could just, you know, really slam down the gas pedal and accelerate revenues even more. So I'm, I'm bullish. Uh, I got no problem buying buying this stock in the low 120s. I added, I mean, I didn't add yesterday, but I've added a lot of stock in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Okay. Great. And I mean, it's just worth calling out. Not necessarily a question, but I mean, if there's a market to disrupt, the global credit market is worth around a hundred trillion dollars. So, um, 
<laughs> the upside potential here could be absolutely huge. Probably the largest market in the world by, you know, like probably mm-hmm. without, not even close. Um, and then the other thing to keep in mind is bank balance sheets right now are as strong as they've ever been ever, ever. There are, there's trillions of dollars sitting on bank balance sheets. I mean, all size banks, not just the big ones, but you know, the credit union, the community banks, the regional banks. I mean, there are, I think there's like 10,000 banks still in the U S and they're sitting on trillions of cash and they don't make money on that cash, you know, cause, cause interest rates are just too low. So where they do make money is they make money on lending, right? Cause they're going to, you know, you, you put your hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Uh, into a savings or checking account, and you're going to earn, you know, 0.05%, you know, five yeah. tenths of 1% if you're lucky. No, not even, probably, I don't even know what rates are right now, but they are, they are, yeah, probably five tenths of 1% is probably accurate for a savings account now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then the bank wants to lend that out. You know, they want to lend it out in the form of a mortgage or a car loan or a personal loan or a small business loan, and then they make the spread. So that's how these banks really make most of their money is on the spread between what they're paying you for your deposit and then what they're lending it out for. So now that banks have trillions of dollars sitting in cash, they need to start generating some revenues on that. And like I said in the very beginning, you know, if someone's coming in with the perfect credit score, that person is no risk. That bank really doesn't need to use AI models to determine that person's credit worthiness because a you know, a 750 credit score basically tells them all they need to know. It's all of the non-prime borrowers um, where these banks want to lend them money, but they need to be able to manage the risk better. And there's something interesting that I saw someone post on a Motley Fool board last week, Kroll Bond Rating Agency looked at a, like the last four or five years of loans um, underwritten or approved through Upstart and several other of their competitors like Prosper and a few others. You know, if you go to Kroll Bond Rating Agency, you can find your go to my Twitter feed and scroll down a couple of days and find it there. Uh, but the interesting thing is, Upstart, out of all of them, Upstart was the only one that outperformed um, Kroll's projections for loan loss. Wow. So, and you know, because I think these projections for loan losses are coming from the average FICO score of the borrower in mm-hmm. that portfolio. And to me, I look at that as, okay, that's, this is where AI is working. You know, if, if Kroll thinks that the, you know, the, uh, the default rate across the portfolio is going to be 13% because the average FICO score is like 600 and the, you know, four years later, the default rate was only, you know, 10%, you know, they outperformed by three or four percentage points because AI did a better job at assessing that person's creditworthiness than the FICO score would have done on its own. So I, I look at that as the AI model actually working and doing what it's supposed to do. And, and because what keeps this flywheel going, it's not really the bank partners, it's the institutional partners that are buying these loans off of the banks. So there are, there are more than 100 institutional partners that are part of this ecosystem and these bank partners are selling 75 to 80% of their loans to these institutional partners. And when these institutional partners look at that data from Kroll and look at how well these, these loans are performing against their competitors, they're going to want to pay a premium for those loans. And that's where this becomes a real win-win-win for everybody. Yeah. 
Well, and I guess, and the usefulness and the effectiveness and the accuracy, I suppose, of the model and the AI application itself is is going to grow exponentially as you get more data uh, and applications through the algorithm itself. Absolutely, and and that that's you know that's one of their largest competitive advantages. I mean, mm. it's not just the team; it's not just their their AI models and, and the bank partners they have. It's the head start. It's all the data. It's eight years of collecting that data. Um, you know, those sixteen billion data points that help make this AI model, you know, light years smarter than it was five or six years ago. You know, and that's that's not something that any other bank can just you know start working on tomorrow and then next month have an AI model as good as what Upstart is taking eight years to build and perfect. So you know they have a massive massive head start and that's why i'm just not really worried about these you know these these fears of competitors coming in and, and stealing part of their their share um and even if you know even if there was some competitor even if you know five of the smartest guys on the planet got together and started building something and two years from now they had models ready to go to market um like you said you know, the credit markets are like a hundred trillion dollars so it's not like upstart can't can't share that pie with someone else no, absolutely not. All right, well, let's finish on Upstart just by getting your target for the end of 2022. And then if we can, in five years time as well. Yep. Um, so I think Upstart does. So in my, in my models, I have them at a very conservative 675 uh, this year. I think there's a good chance they do at least 700, maybe more, especially if you get any contribution from, from that prodigy acquisition. Mm -hmm. Um, I have them. I have them doing um, at least 1.2 billion next year. So, if you throw on a 15 price to sales, you get up to 18 billion. Hold on, let me just let me just run some numbers here. I do it. I probably should keep like a list of all my year, you know, my 2022 year end price targets and all my stocks. But I usually just calculate this, you know, daily as as numbers kind of change. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that would put a price target. So I have a price target of year end 2022, somewhere between like 240 and 260. Got it. Okay. And then in, in five years time, where do you, where do you think go ahead? So I mean, enterprise value right now is, is around 9 billion, um, in five years, I think this could be a, a 50, $55 billion company. Um, you know, based on my models in 2026, I have them doing somewhere between six and seven billion in revenue. Wow! So I mean, it's it, it's hard to know. Like you know, I I know what a multiple right now on that would probably be, but in five years, it's just hard to know what the markets are going to pay on yeah. multiples. You know, where's inflation? Where's interest rates? Blah blah blah. So you know, where are we in the economic cycle? So you know, but you know, based on like where multiples are are now for these types of growth companies, I mean, if they if this if Upstart was doing you know, six and a half billion right now with, you know, call it 50% year over year growth. I mean, it would probably be a 55, $60 billion company. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if people weren't excited about Upstart before that conversation, they definitely will be now. Um, it's certainly a company I'll be looking at. I hope so. Um, and one last thing. So I, I do have a Substack newsletter. Um, I do one or two deep dives every month. Then I do a couple updates. And I do some CEO interviews. Uh, and I recently did an um, an update with on Upstart. So I think it was yesterday, the day before, I did an update on Upstart. And, and so if anyone wants to subscribe, they can go to 
substack.jonahlofton.com, subscribe. You know, there is a free version. That write-up is in there for everybody. But if you scroll to the bottom of that write-up, there's a link to an interview with the CEO of Upstart that he did a few weeks ago. And it was it was the best interview I've seen from him thus far. Uh, I think it's 37 minutes long, and he gets into like the details on why AI is the future of underwriting. Yeah, great. Okay, well, we'll put the link to that in the episode description. I mean, I've, I've had a look. I'm signed up to the free version uh, already, uh, and I got some fascinating insights out of it. And actually, that's where a lot of the research for this interview came from. So I definitely implore our listeners to go over there and check it out. Um, so I know US markets are opening soon. So uh, do, you, do you need to get away now? Uh, no, I got a few more minutes. Great. Okay, well, let's, let's finish by uh, just uh, going through our quick fire questions. So this will take a couple of minutes. Um, we, these are more generic questions. They're not specifically based on, on kind of your experience, but just a generic list of questions we ask all of our guests and just a light-hearted way, I suppose, to end the episode. Um, feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. Um, good luck with that. Uh, so first question, what do you think the top mistake investors make? Oh, boy. Um, God, there's probably so many and there's probably plenty that I make myself. I mean, I think, I think <laughs> over managing your account. I mean, it depends on what kind of investor you are. Are you really a short-term trader or are you really a long-term investor? If you're a long-term investor and you actually do the due diligence and the research, develop conviction in a, a stock or an idea, and then you buy it, you know, don't let your like, don't think you have to do something every day or every week in your account. Um, you know, and don't like if you develop that conviction based on some some thesis or you know, future estimates or product launches, you know, and then two weeks later, the stock is down. And now your, your conviction has changed, not because anything's different with the business, but just because the stock is down. So you have to learn how to separate the, the company from the stock price because they're not always going to, you know, trade highly correlated to one another. I mean, I remember back in February, I did a stock write-up on a company called Dermtech, which has created these non-invasive genomics patches to help determine skin cancer. So instead of you know getting a biopsy and having a mole cut off your body, your dermatologist could use one of these patches or stickers to you know basically pull some skin cells off of your body, send it to Dermtech's processing lab in California, and then uh, within a couple of days, that dermatologist is going to get a report from Dermtech letting them know if there's anything suspicious or cancerous in those skin cells. Total game changer. There are millions of biopsies done every year. People don't want to, you know, 90% of those biopsies come back negative. So that means millions of people got a unnecessary biopsy when they could have gotten this patch first. So I think this company could be a 15 bagger over the next five years. Right now, the enterprise value is about a billion. So I think this stock gets to 15 billion in five years. And there are a lot of people that agreed with me and started buying the stock. And then the stock rallied up to 80 and pulled back down to 40. And then everyone hated it. And I'm like, listen, you loved it three weeks ago at 40. It went up to 80, came back down to 40. And now you hate it. Like, do you hate it because you're mad at yourself for not selling it at 80 and then buying it back? Or are you mad because your conviction that you had two weeks ago is no longer there? And that's where people need to really separate the two. Um, the other thing that I'm starting to talk about that I don't think people are, are paying enough attention to is what's going to happen to multiples on a lot of these growth companies that are going to start to see decelerating revenues into 2022. 
You know, I'm focused on companies that are going to have accelerating revenues. You know, Dermtech is going to have accelerating revenues. Desktop Metal is going to have accelerating revenues. Clearpoint Neuro is going to have accelerating revenues. You should see multiple expansion when that happens. But if you're buying a stock right now at 30 times sales, that is growing this year at 80%, but next year that revenue growth is going to slow down to 40%, well, guess what? That multiple is probably getting getting cut in half as well. So I don't think there's enough new growth investors that are paying attention to the current multiples and what those multiples might have to come down to next year because of where the growth is going to come down. You know, that growth rate is really what determines uh, you know, where the multiple is and obviously margins and some other stuff too. But so those those are like the two things that I would <laughs> those are those are my 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 two points of advice. Like don't don't feel like you have to Make moves in your account every day because someone on CNBC is doing something, um, and and pay attention to you know whether the company's your portfolio are seeing accelerating or decelerating revenues and what that might mean for multiples. Yeah, no, I completely do, uh, agree. Define your time horizon and stick to it. I mean, and and tune out the noise. There's so much sort of financial content out there at the moment, and actually, it's too much, and it can incite you to make uh, a change to your portfolio that you really didn't need to make because as you say your long-term conviction in that business hasn't changed so i completely agree okay well second question where do you go for investment or economic insights do you read specific publishers is it social media where do you go i mean honestly nowadays it's probably twitter more than anything else um there is more free content on twitter than probably any other platform that you can find yeah. And then on top of that, I mean, on Twitter, there's a lot of people that I follow that also have newsletters, you know, either paid or free. Um, so then I, you know, I subscribe to probably 30 or 40 different newsletters as well. So I do a lot of reading uh, and it's not just from, you know, the traditional Wall Street people. I mean, a lot of the reading I do, a lot of the best content I see and the best ideas and the best research is, is coming from people that I find on Twitter. So if you're not if you're an investor and you're not on Twitter, you're doing yourself a big disservice. Yeah, completely agree. Okay, question three: What is the most memorable moment from your career to date? This this is often quite a tricky one, but see if you can pick something out. I mean, I feel like I've had three different careers. You know, I spent ten years in the investment business uh, back from 2002 until 2011. So managing managing capital for high net worth individuals, and then I spent ten years as an entrepreneur. You know, started four or five different companies from technology to consumer goods to e-commerce and then even a, a soundproof paint company. And now I'm back in the investment world uh, managing money again. So, um, I mean, to be honest, I think the most memorable thing will be, I will actually, the most memorable thing is when I, when I launched my Substack newsletter and, you know, got to like 30 or 40,000 subscribers in you know, in a month. <laughs> that was, wow. That was kind of crazy. Um, maybe, maybe two months. And then, but I'm launching an ETF later this year and actively manage ETF so I can, um, you know, execute my strategy, not just for myself, but for other investors as well. You know, I think the, the last year and a half has obviously been a pretty wild ride in the markets. I think a lot of investors that did well last year are realizing that maybe it was more luck than skill. And I think this recent pullback in growth stocks, you know, from February to May was a reminder that investing is a lot harder than it looks. And you have to put in a lot of time and effort to be good at it. 
And I don't think a lot of retail investors want to put in the time and effort. And especially as they get back to a normal life, you know, with work, with traveling, uh, I don't think they're going to have the time to put into investing and, and doing it well. So mm. I think the time for me to launch an ETF is is it's kind of lining up perfectly. So when that launches later this year, I expect that to be, you know, probably the the best highlight of my career. Yeah, great. Is there any kind of more information we can get on the ETF, or is is that sort of to come from you? Not not yet. Uh, we haven't filed anything with the SEC yet. I'm still going through the, the vendor search process. I have it narrowed down to two primary vendors, but you know, ETFs get pretty complicated. Um, you know, with you have, to, you have to hire a fund admin. You have to work with uh, you know the trading partners and the market makers, and then you have to have you know custodians and compliance and operations. I mean, and then there's a trust committee. Uh, it, it is very complex, and it's pretty expensive too. You know, it's uh, it's a pretty significant financial undertaking to get it started, and then you know have to cover those monthly fund expenses until the fund is technically break even. So it's it's a big decision for me, but. Uh, I'm pretty confident that I can do a, a good job and it does make sense for me to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll watch that space then. Penultimate question, a top tip for your younger self. So if, if you could go back in time and give yourself one bit of advice, what do you think it would be? I mean, <laughs> uh, if we're really doing 2020 hindsight here, I would say, you know, I started working when I was 13 years old so that I could save money to buy baseball cards. That was probably not the best idea or use of capital. Mm-hmm. So start working when you're 14 years old, but use that money to buy stocks instead. Like no, no joke. I mean, this is early, you know, <laughs> early 90s when I started working. I mean, I could only imagine the amount of money I would have right now if I was putting all of that cash into baseball cards. Now, I know for a 14-year-old, that is that's hard to, you know, hard to get excited about stocks because you can't touch them, you can't really see them, you know, you can't play with them like you can with baseball cards. Mm. But you know. If you're in, if you're investing if you're working early investing early you will absolutely thank yourself 20 30 years down the road you know last night I did a hour and a half uh, presentation for uh, 200 students at Duke uh, you know like I think mostly in the finance and economic department um, and a lot of them asked or you know one of the common questions was am I am I too young to start investing and I say absolutely not you know the earlier you start investing the better yeah, exactly. Well, then it just compounds over time, I suppose. I think Warren Buffett was actually one of those very few people that did start around 13, 14, and he's not done too badly. Yeah, I mean, if you're 14, I mean, even if you're just putting $50 a month into an investment account, and you know, at that point, you're probably just better off buying an ETF yeah. because you're not going to have enough capital to really build a diversified portfolio. But you know, there's nothing wrong at that age buying an ETF, then you own a basket of stocks, you know, growth stocks, perhaps. Uh, and then you can watch that ETF grow over time. And as you start making money, it motivates you to keep contributing to that account. And I think that's important. And then the other thing I tell people is the earlier you start, you know, you, you, you're going to make, you know, as an investor, you're going to make a lot of mistakes and you're better off to make those mistakes when you're young with less money rather than waiting until you're older with more money to make those mistakes because then they become more expensive and then you really, you know, then you you really see a, a setback in your financial future. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, final question then, and this is sort of the opto question. We like to speak to people outperforming sort of benchmark and traditional or uh, kind of median returns, I suppose. So we always ask 
everyone that we speak to, whether an investor, a hedge fund manager, even a business owner, kind of what their best source of alpha is. If you had to narrow it down to one thing, where do you think the great investors derive their outperformance? Um, so, I mean, for me personally, it's being concentrated in my highest conviction ideas. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's where you're going to generate the most alpha. It's also where you risk, you know, losing the most amount of money. Um, do the work and have conviction in, let's say, you know, five to 10 ideas, then, you know, and, and those ideas, in your mind are significantly, you know, better risk reward than the rest of your names in your portfolio, then you should be overweighted in those five or 10 names. So for instance, uh, I have 26 stocks in my portfolio right now, and my top 10 names are 65% of my, of my assets. So I am heavily concentrated in those top names like Upstart and Futu and Celsius and Dermtech. And I just can't find any other stocks outside of those four or five that get me even remotely as excited about them um, you know, over the next three or four years. Not just, you know, it, and it's because of the fundamentals. You know, I mean, there's just there's very few companies out there that are growing at 150% and profitable at the same time. And when I find those types of companies, those are the ones that I want to, you know, have as my overweight positions. Perfect. Yeah. Nice, solid bit of advice to end on, I think. So uh, I'll leave you to it. I think uh, US markets have just opened. uh, So you've got a busy day ahead, I'm sure. Uh, But it just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Jonah. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Kofruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.